Al Huang is a student at Washita Hills College, and I teach at Washita Hills Academy, and Al came to our academy as a senior. That's where I first got to know Al. When he first arrived, he was on my construction crew. If I can tell a little story on him. <laughs> he arrived from California, and having never done much in the area of construction before, I can remember him arriving, and my crew had been working with me for a year or so, and we were building a new staff house, and we were putting sheathing on the outside, and we were building with metal, she- metal studs, and, there, and, the, and we're screwing all the sheeting on into the metal studs. And if you've ever done that, anyone ever done that? Screw gun? <laughs> if you do it, it's not too hard. If you get used to it, you put the screw gun, and my, my fellows were going zip, zip. And Al came, and he would grab the thing and go, ugh, Took him about 10 minutes to get one screw in. <laughs> we're like, zip, <laughs> zip. <laughs> and Al worked away. But one of the things that I have appreciated about Al is that he was a testimony to me of when you put your heart into something and you decide to do it, God blesses your efforts. And Al became one of my favorite faithful workers on my construction crew, able and skilled, not only putting screws in, but in almost every other, every area. And it was a testimony to me of when you give your talents to God, and he may not have such one that when you first arrive, but when you start using it, when you start doing it, it grows. And I can... Uh, uh, I was having to be gone, and I turned to Al and I said, Okay, Al, you're in charge now, construction. He and one of the other fellows had been on it, and he gave it to him, and he, he took it, and he, he and the other fellow, they ran it, and they put up the whole wall and the roof, the, I mean, the section, they framed it up, and I came back, and it was all done. It was done great. And uh, But not only has he been in that area, but, you know, Al, I've seen him mature and grow spiritually. And he's a sought-after speaker, traveled around the world through Asia, um, and, and particularly speaking to young people at youth meetings and uh, camp meetings and so forth in Asia and uh, in various places. He's spoken many times uh, here at, at our school, and um, he is working with General Youth Conference. Some of you may be familiar with that. If you don't and aren't, you should, and I would challenge you to go and get familiar with it this fall or really December in Baltimore. There's a Congress, something like ASI, but it's only for young people your age and older, um, but <laughs> mainly for young people. It's a conference over the Christmas holidays that focuses us right on growing and being challenged spirit- to spiritual excellence. And Al is working with that as the uh, logistics, the, pro- the coordinator um, for the housing and so forth. He's, he's involved in many areas of ministry for the Lord. And so I know we're going to be blessed tonight by the message that the Lord will share with him. Also, in the morning, I just encourage you, it's 7 o'clock. I know it may seem early, but we're going to have special times with God here, as Al's going to share with us in the morning, through the morning devotional. What time? 7 o'clock. Where? Here. Here. (laughs) Is that before breakfast or after breakfast? Before. Before. (laughs) So get up. If your stomach's growling, you can't do anything, because breakfast doesn't come until what time? Yeah, it's not until after our program anyway. So come and uh, enjoy our, the time of spiritual fellowship together. You know, my wife, when I got married, one of the things that I appreciated about her is that one of the commitments she has made is that if, it, this, if there's a decision, should I buy this book? Should we spend this money? Should we do this? If it is something that is going to enhance my spiritual walk with God, it is by far worth the effort, 
the, the expense, whatever it takes, if it's going to help me grow closer to God. And so these are times that are offered. But many people come and we like to sleep in in the nice hotel. I, I tell you, there's never been an ASI like this one before that I've been to. Anyone know? <laughs> this is one incredible place. <laughs> if this is your first time, not all ASIs are quite like this. <laughs> don't get too used to it. <laughs> but don't neither get too comfortable. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth. Tinsel goes strangely dim. Come at 7 in the morning. Again, let's just bow our heads and invite God's presence. Father in heaven, Lord, I just ask that you might bless Al again as you've blessed him many times as I have sat in his audience listening. And I pray, Lord, that you might anoint him again and that he might share a message from your word for us tonight that would help us spiritually in our walks with you. That when we finish and leave this room, that we might realize that your presence was speaking to our hearts, giving us a message not only to hear, but to put into our lives and to practice. And that because of our time spent here, uh, that we might be ready for you when you come back one day. Very soon, Lord, the signs of the times in this world are rapidly fulfilling, indicating uh, we may not have much time left. And I pray, Father, that you might urge us on to spiritual excellence tonight by your spirit speaking throughout. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Do I have a lapel? I think I can do this. I wish I had a third arm. It always makes it easier with the handheld mic. But, uh, Maybe, yeah, we can use that. Thank you, Mr. Neal, for the introduction. It's always interesting to hear what people will say about you and your introductions, particularly when people know you. And Mr. Neal, as you can tell, knows me quite well. And uh, he was gracious enough to leave out all the experiences where he left me with the project and he came back and it wasn't done properly. But uh, it was a learning process nonetheless. And I just want to share a little bit with you about the General Youth Conference before I get into the message tonight. I should probably step back here. We have a booth. I don't remember what number we are, but feel free to come drop by. We have some pamphlets and some information about our upcoming convention this December in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme is By Every Word. And the purpose of our convention this year, our theme, is really to emphasize the relevance and the importance of God and His inspired writings in our lives, in all aspects of it. And I just want to encourage you that you not settle for just what the world says is good and right and best. Because there is something far greater. There is realities beyond what we can touch, see, taste, feel, hear that is worth our time much more than the things that occupy us right now. And GYC tries to instill within us as young people a principle. And without going to too many words, it's a principle that I think if we grasp and understand and apply to our lives, we can end up being the most happy, like Rachel was talking about earlier, the most fulfilled 
and the most successful people in this world. And successful, I need to follow that up with understanding that successful based on God's definition and not the world's definition. So the General Youth Conference, I invite you to look it up. In fact, registration is open as of yesterday for individuals. Uh, you can talk to me more later for more information about the General Youth Conference. Now, a little bit of explanation what we're going to be doing this weekend together. Tonight is going to be the first meeting I'm sharing with you. And then every morning from now on, at what time, everyone? Seven. Seven. Where? Right here. Very good. The theme, if you want to have one, for the messages I'll be sharing is going to be called The Servants of God. And within this broad theme, I want to look at some practical aspects of what it means to be a servant. Why is it important? What does it mean to me living in Earth's history right now? And what are the practical implications of being a servant of God? And tonight, the title or the theme for this meeting is Jesus First. And that's not the title of my message, but I believe through the message that we'll be studying together in God's Word, we will be able to better understand what it means to be, to, what it means to put Jesus first in our life. What it really implies. We talk about you know, making Jesus our personal Savior. And we say things like, Jesus is my best friend. And Jesus has to be number one. We have to place Jesus first. It's a Christian cliche. It rolls off our tongue as though it's just bypasses all centers of reason and choice. It just comes out. It's just one of those things. But what does it really mean? What does it mean to place Jesus first in our lives. That's the purpose of our message tonight. And the title that I have given to this message is Not My Will. Not My Will. So before we open the Bible, I'd just like to invite you just bow your heads with me one more time. Father in heaven, we are gathered here seeking to understand better what it means to place Jesus first in our lives. How often we have wondered how it is possible for us to gain that vibrant experience with our Lord. How can we be a steady, stable, growing, dynamic Christian? How can we have that zeal? How can we be so faithful? How can we be a servant of God? Lord, I ask that you will teach us through your word this evening. May we hear with open hearts and open minds what your spirit has to teach us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I actually begin, I just want to, out of curiosity, how many of you brought your Bibles? Okay. I have some homework for you. Please bring your Bibles to our meetings, particularly in the mornings, because I have nothing good to say. My life, my experience is not that special. It's not interesting. It's not important. But what is contained in God's Word, that's what's important. And that's what we're here to study, and that's what we're interested in. And so I encourage you, bring your Bibles. And if you don't have your Bibles, share with someone. Uh, it's a good thing for Christians to share. 
and uh, look over someone's shoulder. I'm sure they won't mind. Uh, we're going to study the Bible together. So, to begin, let's turn our Bibles together to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. This is a passage that we will be coming back to later on this week together. So keep it in mind what we are going to say or what we are going to discover. Revelation chapter 6. Let's begin reading in verse 12. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman... And every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now this passage is describing what's called the opening of the sixth seal of Revelation. Revelation is divided into several sections. One of those sections are called the seven seals. And a sixth seal, simply put, if I can put it as simply as I can possibly muster, is that it is a description of the second coming, or the events immediately preceding. So as we see the sixth seal open, as we see the events that are happening when the sixth seal is open, we recognize that there is calamity, disaster, there is all sorts of earthquakes and and, and natural disasters and the powers of heaven, the powers of earth are all being shaken right before Jesus comes. And the question is asked in verse 17, For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That's a very important question, but come back later this weekend, and we're going to answer this question. But to put the perspective before us, This is the stage, this is the launching pad that we need to establish for the remainder of the messages that will be coming. And that is that there is something that must happen before the sixth seal is opened. There's something that must happen before the last day events, or the disasters and the events that lead right up to Jesus' second coming must happen. Something has to first take place. What is it? Look in chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. If I can draw the progression here, we see the picture of the end of time, all of the calamities and disasters right before Jesus returns. But then there's a message that says, wait, wait, wait. Before you let the four winds of strife and destruction and disaster loose, first we need to find a very special group of people. We need to find this group of people that are called the servants 
of God. And the need to be set apart by this thing called the seal of God. And we're going to be discussing what the seal of God means later on. But tonight I just want to establish this very important fact. And that is until there arises a group of people which bear the characteristics, who qualify to be called servants of God, Jesus cannot come. The end of the world will not take place if God does not have this special group of people called the servants of God. Often we... In fact, I was interested to hear what Mr. Neal was going to say. Because the last time I preached this very same message, the man who introduced me, introduced me as the servant of God. Haven't you heard that before? When the preacher gets up to speak, somebody introduces him, brother so-and-so, the servant of the Lord, or the servant of God, he's going to bring us the message for the hour. It's another one of those cliches that we use as Christians. We often say, that was a servant of God, that man. He was a great man. It's just a title that often is void or just emptied of any significant meaning. But the Bible places such an importance on this group of people called the servants of God that the last day events will not take place until that group of people are identified. Until they are found. So what does it mean to be a servant of God? That is our purpose this weekend. To identify, to figure that out. To find the answer. And I will make this disclaimer now. In case some of you wonder. And that is, in a few short days, four meetings. There is no way we can cover this broad, expansive topic in its entirety. There's no way. So we're not going to do an exhaustive study on what it means to be a servant of God. You can go to your Strong's Concordance or your Bible program and type in servant of God and you'll find this terminology or this idea repeated so frequently that it will take you a very long time just to study all of those verses out. But I hope this weekend we can look at several practical aspects of what it means to be the servant of God. And tonight, I want to take that word servant. And I want to understand better in the Christian context what it means to be a servant. What does that word mean? I want to turn our attention first to the English Dictionary. This is Webster's 11th Collegiate Dictionary. And the definition for servant, this is what I found. A servant is one who is employed by another for such offices or for other labor. So, someone who is hired by someone else to do his work. But the second definition, or the second part of this definition to me, is very significant. A servant is one who is subject to another's command. A servant is someone who is subject to another's command. 
What's a servant? What's the definition? Primarily, I want to work with this definition being subject to another person's command. And I looked at the definition of the origin, in the original language used in the Bible. So I looked in Strong's Concordance. A servant is one who gives himself up to another person's will. To put it in my own words, a servant is someone who submits his will to someone else. A servant is someone who submits his will to someone else. One more time. A servant is someone who submits his will to someone else. Now let's stop right there and think about this for a moment. That tells me that if there is to be a servant, there must be someone else. You might think that is so simple, you're being ridiculous. But think about this. In order for there to be a servant, first of all, there must be a master. So in order for us to be a servant, fundamentally, we must acknowledge our master. Who is our master? That is the bottom line when it comes to being a servant. Someone else who has the control or who has the right upon our will. That is our servant. Or that is our master, excuse me. Look with me in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And verse... 13. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. This is the end of a parable that Jesus teaches, but I believe this verse gives us the principle that we want to identify. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Specifically, Jesus is dealing with the issue of money. But I want to expand this concept. Just this concept of no servant can honestly serve two masters. He will either love the one or hate the other. Now let me put this to you very simply. If God is our master, then we cannot have a second one. If God is our master... We cannot have a second master. Follow this train of thought with me. And what is a servant? A servant is someone who submits his will to his master. And so if God is our master and we cannot have another master, then the question is, if we claim to be the servants of God, are we submitting our will to our one and only master who we claim is God. Keep this thought in mind because this is the germ of the idea that we want to develop tonight. Who is our master? To whom do we submit our will? Is there someone else other than Jesus who has my first, last, and best? What does it mean to be a servant of God? We continue our study. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. 
We'll read from verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus calls these two the greatest of the commandments. And the first definition we looked at for a servant is one who surrenders himself to another's command or to another's will. And if the will of God is to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, the question is, if we are claiming to be servants, if we wish to be his servant, Are we submitting our lives to His commands? And I'm not going to spend much time elaborating on the commandments. I'm sure you've heard many messages and you've thought about these things yourself. But this idea that the commandment of God dictates what we need to do if we are to be servants is fundamental. Because often I've heard things like, sometimes coming out of my own mouth, I've heard things like, well, God will understand. God doesn't really mean for us to do this, 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 and that. It's not really necessary, is it? It's just someone else's idea. It's just what the pastor thinks. It's just what my parents are trying to shove down my throat. But wait a second. Is that having the mind of a servant? We're going to come back to that thought. But at this point, I just want to look at an example in the Bible. I want to look at a practical demonstration through the example, through the life and experience of someone whom I know we look up to very much who explains to us, who demonstrates to us what it really means to be a servant. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul asks of us to possess the mind of Christ. What is this mind of Christ? Let's look in the next few verses. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But look at verse 9. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Jesus Christ sets for us the example of what it means to be a true servant. We see, Paul says, let his mind, let Jesus' mind be in you. But what is the mind? 
What is the mind of Christ? The explanation is simply given. Jesus Christ was the King of kings, Lord of lords, equal with God, coexistent with God. But He lowered Himself, humbled Himself, brought Himself down through the ranks of created beings to be one with man. That is what it means to be a servant. Jesus humbled himself. He lowered himself to be what any other created being would even cringe to be. A fallen human being. Jesus took our body. He lived in this dusty, dirty, dangerous, dingy earth to reveal to us what it means to be a servant of God. And Jesus gives us the example. And he humbled himself even becoming obedient unto death. The death of the cross. But we see that Jesus did not remain at the depths of degradation as a fallen human being. He did not live forever in this earth. But he was exalted Above every name. And in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20. We see Jesus giving an explanation. Of how God views servanthood. And his relation to greatness. Matthew chapter 20 verse 25. Jesus called them unto him and said. You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. Our world today conditions us to think that we need to fight for our rights. We need to climb to the top. We need to be king of the hill. We need to be the best of the best or else we are disgraceful. It is not worth our time to be a servant, to be humble, to lower ourselves to be another person's servant. But in the sight of God, greatness is not constituted by what we possess, what we can do. What we know, what degrees are after our name, how much wealth we have accumulated. But greatness is in the simplicity of serving our fellow man and being a faithful servant to God. But Jesus reveals to us what it means to be this kind of a servant. What it means to be great in the sight of God. Look with me in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. Jesus had been traveling, walking for a long time, and he is tired, he is thirsty, he is hungry, and he is weary. 
And he sits down by Jacob's well as, as his disciples go into town to find some food. And Jesus sits at that well and he sees this woman coming at the heat of the day. And you know the story where Jesus begins his dialogue and he reveals to this woman that he run, understands the, the, the past that she has lived. And he con- brings conviction to her life. And she runs back to the town and says, This man has told me everything that I've done. Even though it wasn't very glamorous, her past history. And so the disciples came back. They found Jesus sitting there. Jesus asked the woman for water, but she forgot all about it, left her water pot, ran back to town. Jesus never got the water that he wanted. He never ate. He expended his mental energy and and his emotions to win this woman. And the disciples come back and say, Lord, please eat something. And notice what Jesus' response was in John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 32. Let's begin in verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Verse 32. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Have any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And to finish his work. What is the definition we discovered earlier for a servant? One who submits himself to the will of another. And Jesus gives us the example of becoming the servant of servants. And what does Jesus say about his relationship to the will of God? He says, to do the will of my Father is more important than even my physical food. More important than physical drink. More important than the things essential for sustenance of physical life. Jesus submitted himself to the will of God to the point where he was willing to surrender the necessities of physical survival if it meant accomplishing the will of God. God, I hope you're beginning to understand a bigger picture of what it means to be a servant of God. We continue in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus says, verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus Christ, who laid aside his divinity, submitted himself to the will of God day by day, to the point where he says, of mine own self, I can do nothing submitted his will to the Father in all aspects of life. The book Desire of Ages tells us that Jesus submitted his will to the Father so completely that he made no plans for himself from day to day. He simply awoken in the morning, spent his time with God, and simply allowed the Lord to tell him where to go, what to do, 
who to meet, what to say. Jesus' life reveals to us a life of a true servant of God. Someone who submitted his will entirely to the Father. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We see perhaps in the most graphic detail the struggle of the human will. But we see the reaction of Jesus Christ as he faced the greatest trial of his life. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And he went a little further, Jesus went a little further, and fell upon his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You see, somewhere within Jesus' human nature, I don't, I don't know how it could be, but somehow we see clearly that there was contention. Jesus somehow did not want to go through what he was about to go through. There was something that was crushing him. But yet, he said, not my will. Even if it means I will never come out of the grave. For we are told that he cannot see past the portals of the tomb. He could not. Yet he submitted his will so completely that he was willing not just to go through with the sacrifice, but he was willing, even if it meant never to rise from the grave. To be a servant of God means surrendering our will to God. And Jesus illustrates to us through his own life and example what it means to have this attitude of submission and surrender. To be a servant of God means to surrender our will to God in all of life's aspects. And Jesus surrendered his will day by day, so completely, so entirely, that is more important than his physical food. It's more important than life itself. And this is where I have to give myself a pinch. Because the Bible tells me that before Jesus comes back, before the final events culminate in the second coming, there will be a group of people that are, this, like, that are like Jesus that possess the character of Jesus to the extent that they surrender their will to the extent that Jesus surrendered His will. And I want to perhaps bring this down to a little bit more practical level. Often I have wondered to myself, why is it so important that we follow the do's and don'ts. Why is it that God tells us why or what to do, how to live, 
how we're supposed to do certain things, what we're supposed to eat, how we're supposed to dress. Why does he care about all of these standards? And often I catch myself saying, but if it's not a salvational issue, if it's okay to do this sometimes, if it's not necessarily morally wrong or wicked or evil, why is it that God still cares? It's not salvational, is it? I'm not going to go to hell if I do it just once, will I? But I have to catch myself. Because the issue is not so much the do's and the don'ts. The issue is what goes on inside here. God is not only interested in what we do outside of our bodies, outside of our minds. God is interested in the process by which we think. And this idea of being a servant... It strikes at the very root of not just what we do, but the, the very fundamental attitude from which our thinking and our actions stem. How does a servant speak to his master? Does a servant come to his master and say, you don't really expect me to do that, do you? I mean, I'm your servant. You don't expect me to do what you want me to do. I mean, come on, God, you're my master, sure, but you're a nice guy. It's okay if I just neglect my stated duty just this once. You don't really mind, do you? I mean, you don't really mean what you say, do you? If we are a servant, how can we speak that way to our master? The reasonable response for a servant is simply to say, Lord, What is thy will for me? How may I be of service? What would you want me to do? Because it is our duty to obey the will and the command of the master. And so if I can give you a little spin on the Christian experience, on the paradigm in which we exist and live and think, As Christians, if we claim to be true servants of God, no longer should we start talking like, God, do I have to do that? God, do you really mean that? Isn't it okay if I just go that way this once? But our thinking will become the thinking of a true servant. And that is, Lord, what would you have me to do? Yes, there are things that God desires us to do that is not clearly stated in the Ten Commandments. A do and don't. Yes. There are things that God say, that is the best option, but this is an acceptable option. You can choose. But the issue is not so much what we do as so much how we think. God is interested in the surrender of our will. He's interested in the process by which we reason. We will begin to think, Lord, if that is the best, if that is your will, I want to do it. Instead of thinking, how far can I go and still make it to heaven? What is the least amount I have to do and still squeak past those pearly gates? 
You see, the issue of being a servant of God strikes more than what we do, more than our habits in life. It strikes at the very attitude by which we live as Christians. What is our motivation? Are we motivated to do things because it is the will of God and we wish to do what pleases Him? Or is it based upon requirements that I simply have to meet to go to heaven? How? How can we be a servant that lives life with this paradigm, with this way of thinking that we don't live just to do what we think is okay, what we want to do as far as is okay, but to live our life in such a way that we want to please God in every aspect, even if it means going above and beyond the call of duty. Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12 verse 2 explains to us that there is a way that we can live and prove the will of God. And Paul explains how we do that. First, we present our bodies a living Sacrifice. Second, we are not conformed to this world. But thirdly, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Three steps. Number one, present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, when you take that phrase, living sacrifice, do you see a somewhat of an oxymoron? Somewhat of a contradiction of terms? To live means to live, but to sacrifice something, by its very definition, means to kill it. So we are to somehow die, but yet live. If I can put it simply, there is this thing within each one of us that inspiration labels with four letters. S-E-L-F. Self. And we are told that the battle with self is the greatest battle ever fought. And self, if I can define in my own words, is the desire that I have, what I want to do. But yet, we have this other thing called our will. And we are also told that everything depends upon the right action of the will. And if we are to live but yet die, something must live and something must die within us. And if I can just put it simply like this. Our wills must live, but self must die. We must be able to live, yes. But as Galatians 2 verse 20 says, Not, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And if we are to use the illustration of 
a dead person, if my own desires and our, my own inclinations and my own interests are killed or is sacrificed, what that simply means is that there is no reaction, no interest or responding core from myself. But I simply look to see what is thy will for me, O God. And do that which He has intended for me. The second step, be not conformed to this world. The world tells us, just do it. If it feels good, do it. You are your own boss. You deserve it. You are your own master. That is the message of the world. But the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing? What do you mean? We looked at the text earlier. To possess the mind of Christ. To be willing to take the lowest position, but not just for the sake of being humble, but doing what the will of the Father is in our own lives from day to day to day. What does it mean to be a servant? Simply put, today, our definition, surrendering our will to another. And if we are to be the servants of God, then surely God must be the possessor of our will. And so when we come across decisions in our lives, when we are faced with difficult circumstances, when something within us tells us, I don't want to do that, but God's stated will is that we go this direction, we have a decision to make. Will I be a servant of God? Am I going to forsake my own desires? Am I going to present myself a living sacrifice? And do what God intends for me to do? Or will I continue to serve myself as my own master? As young people, often we are faced with relationship issues. And perhaps in more, more in this area than in other, any other area, we find our wills conflicting with what is the known will of God. Sometimes we get ourselves into situations where I think we know it's incorrect and it's not right. Are we going to surrender our will to do what God asks us to do? Recently, I've talked with several friends who are questioning, God, does He really expect me to do all of these things? To live the healthful life? To use my time constructively? To fill my mind with uplifting and edifying thoughts? Does God really expect me to do that? Fundamentally, it is just a revelation that their wills are being crossed by the will of God. And if I may put this simply to you, and that is the fundamental cornerstone, if I may say so, of the Christian experience is the surrender of our will 
to God. If we are unable to learn to place ourselves as a living sacrifice on the altar of God's will, we cannot be a servant of God. And may I even say, go to the next step to say, we cannot be a true Christian. Our will must be placed before God. We must surrender our will. And in closing, I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ submitted His will. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, somehow He struggled terribly. Jesus went through this experience of submitting His will to the Father. He fought so hard that blood dripped out of His pores. And I can say, honestly, I have not struggled to surrender my will to that extent. But yet Jesus surrendered His will even to the point of death. And that is what's required of God's faithful generation before He returns. A pure faith in which our wills are surrendered so completely that we would rather obey God. His commands and His will rather, and we would rather die than to disobey. And so today, will we be servants of God? Are we going to submit our will to the Master? It is now the days of our youth. There may come times where we make the wrong decisions. Perhaps we have. I know I have. But it's not too late right now to make the commitment to say, Lord, I want to give myself entirely to you to do what your will is for my life. And I want to be so faithful that even if it costs my life, I will be faithful unto death to submit my will to you at all costs. That's what it means to be a servant God. Is that your desire tonight? Do you want to simply say, Lord, I give myself to you. I want to surrender my will. And God knows that our wills are weak. He knows that. And this appeal is simply for you to raise your hand. If you wish to say, Lord, I want to make the commitment, but I need your help. My hand is raised because I want to be a servant of God. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, tonight as we discuss just for a few minutes this fundamental issue of Christianity, of placing our will on the altar of your, your will, we ask that you will fill us with your spirit, that you will convict us when we are heading in the wrong direction, that we will have a new attitude, that we will no longer ask What are the limits of our requirements? What if can we? What if we don't? But that we will begin to start thinking with a new attitude towards your will in our lives. That we will simply live life seeking your highest pleasure in doing whatever it is that you desire of us. 
And Lord, as we continue to share this weekend together, may you grant us the experience of being your servant. Help us to surrender to you each day, each moment. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. American Cassette Ministries is pleased to provide you with this presentation from the 2006 ASI International Convention held in Grapevine, Texas. Thousands of laity and leadership gathered together for this 59th annual convention to provide challenge, nurture, and experience in sharing Christ in the marketplace. This is a digital recording for optimum sound quality. International Copyright 2006, American Cassette Ministries. For the largest selection of authentic, genuine Adventist preaching available, visit our secure website at www.americancassette.org. Our latest catalog is online, plus thousands of other selections to choose from. We accept MasterCard, Visa, and Discover credit cards. You will find there is no compromise here at ACM. We've been maintaining the integrity of the Three Angels' messages since 1975. We request your prayers and continued tax-deductible financial support for this 501c3 nonprofit ministry so that we can continue helping prepare you and your loved ones to meet Jesus Christ. He's coming soon.